I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. It is so very important that when we read God's word, when we study God's word, and I'd even go as far as when you pick up a passage for a morning devotion, that you remind yourself of the purpose of the book or the letter that it was written towards. It does impact the interpretation and the application. Tim did that so well for us last Sunday as he entered into a passage of teaching in Philippians chapter 2. He pulled in, and we reached back and pulled in the purpose for which Paul was writing. And it impacted the interpretation and the application, namely humility and unity and joy. I probably don't have to remind you, but John has written with a purpose, and you've heard it over and over again. And keeping that focus in mind helps us understand. You'll know that he's writing to second-generation Jews. In other words, Jews that lived one generation after Jesus. He's writing about A.D. 90, and you know that Christ was crucified about A.D. 30. These people lived at a time when there was no more temple. Temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. In fact, the Jewish religion, as it was known, was decimated. They were scattered around Asia Minor by the Roman Empire. And John is really writing an evangelistic letter. It's a praises of the life of Christ so that these second-generation Jews, when they hear of Jesus, they would be convinced, and I quote, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by believing in him, they will have life in his name. He says that. This is an apologetic letter. It's a a gospel. he's, He's convincing them that Jesus is the Christ. And throughout this gospel, he has accounted signs and wonders, teaching, and so on. And we recently looked at the trial, which explained very clearly that Jesus was in control of the events, even to his death. And this morning, we're going to be looking at his burial. I had initially intended to to do a lot more, and I... Uh, I found that I couldn't get past this, so there will be other Sundays we move into the resurrection. And John is going to, by the way, outline for us all the evidence of the resurrection. Why? So that these readers would know that this is Christ, the Son of the living God. The passage that we're looking at today is going to use some very interesting men, incredibly interesting men. Who could ever write a narrative where you pick two men 
both members of a group of 70 who will seek for the death of Jesus Christ. And these two men will end up becoming evidence that he is the Christ. You wouldn't be able to contrive a story like that. You wouldn't be able to make something up like that. Like if there was a large body of people in Canada that were seeking the execution of an individual, and when that occurred, a number of members of that body stepped out of the closet, so to speak, and show their love and admiration for the person they've executed. You couldn't write a novel like that or a narrative. But John does. Again, with the purpose of bringing evidence to the mind of the reader. I'm going to read verses 38 to 42 in John 19. 38 to 42. After this, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, that would be preparation for the Sabbath yet to come, the Saturday, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. You can see as well as I can that it was Joseph of Arimathea who asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Arimathea is part of Palestine. It's... uh, uh, It's believed to be the old town of Ramah, where Samuel was born. That's basically all we know about Arimathea. We learn as we read all the Gospels and the the influence of other evangelists that Joseph was a very wealthy man. He's also presented by Mark as a righteous seeker of the kingdom, quote, unquote. A righteous seeker of the kingdom. He's presented here in John as a secret follower of Jesus. Also, Mark uh, characterizes him as a very well-respected member of the Sanhedrin. That's the council that sought to have Jesus crucified That's the council where Caiaphas was the chief priest. You remember the story of the courtyard and Peter by the fire and Jesus being presented to 
Caiaphas and the council. Joseph of Arimathea was in that council that night. Luke says, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. So what we don't read prior to this is that in this member of 70, there was at least one man that said, I don't agree with this choice. I don't agree with this choice. He was looking, as I said, for the kingdom of God. He was, he was called in the Gospels a God-fearer. It was even found among some Gentiles, a person looking for God to establish his kingdom. And it's this Joseph who will bury the body of our Lord and Savior. And he'll put it, as we read in other Gospels, in his own family tomb. He would have had a place in a wall of a rock that had been hewn out that belonged to his family. It would have held the bodies of several family members, but John teaches us that no one had ever been buried there. Joseph goes to Pilate, asks for the body. He, he takes, and I presume he had help to do this, but the Bible says he took the body down and he intended to bury Jesus in his own family tomb. We're also told by the other Gospels that he took linen cloths. He would have had to purchase these special cloths to wrap the body of Christ. We're also told that he secured a stone and it was rolled in front of the tomb. Of course, all this, and we shouldn't miss this, fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53 that says that our Lord, uh, they, they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there's no deceit in his mouth. Joseph of Arimathea, interesting character member of the Sanhedrin, the very body that sought the execution of our Savior. He was a reluctant participant, but immediately upon the death of Christ, before the day ended, he had gone to Pilate. That may have also been quite a fearful event to go to the governor of Rome and ask for the body to show publicly who you are. He took the body down and prepared it for burial. The Jews didn't normally embalm the bodies. That's why in Middle East culture, the burial is often done the same day as the death. Joseph was helped, though. The text tells us that he was helped by a man named Nicodemus. Now, that's someone you've heard about before, even in this preaching series in John chapter 3. It was Nicodemus that said to Jesus on one night as he came to see him in darkness, 
Rabbi, we see what you do and hear what you say. We know you must be a man sent from God. You'll remember that Jesus taught him that to see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. It was to Nicodemus, essentially, that Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. There's a presumption in the Bible that Nicodemus was also a secret follower of Jesus. When the Pharisees spoke against Jesus back in John 7, it was Nicodemus that stood up and argued that Jesus should have a fair trial under Jewish law, under Mosaic law, John 7, 50 to 52. In our account today, we see that Nicodemus brings, joins with Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices. Grant Osborne, one of the, the late Grant Osborne, one of the great expositors of the Gospel of John, writes, this was an extraordinary amount fit for a king. Myrrh was a fragrant resin that was used for embalming the Egyptians, but the Jews used a form of powder mixed with aloes and aromatic sandalwood, and together Nicodemus had secured 75 pounds of this. In John chapter 12, we had the story of the woman who anointed the body of Jesus. Do you remember how much ointment she brought that day in which the disciples were aghast that she would be so uh, elaborate in her anointing of the Savior? Well, the answer is she brought one pound. When we studied John chapter 12, we learned that one pound of ointment equaled a year's wage. Now, you all didn't graduate just recently, but how's your math? Nicodemus secured 75 pounds of ointment. This is so incredibly unusual. This is why the historians and the commentators, the cultural commentators, suggest that in the mind of Nicodemus, he was burying the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Other funerals that have been quoted in history don't compare with the great amount of ointment that, and, and, and spices that Nicodemus provided. So you see these two men, how unusual. It's fascinating, just these few verses. How fascinating it is about these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Both respected, highly respected. Please understand that Nicodemus, when 
when, when Jesus called Nicodemus the teacher of the law, his position within Jewish academia would make him the president of the seminary if there was such a thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? And obviously, in inspired, authoritative, inerrant scripture, Luke says that Joseph of Arimathea was highly respected. They were both wealthy, both incredibly wealthy. Neither of them were part of the original 12. Neither of them were part of the disciples. Both of them were thought of as secret followers of Jesus. And yet both of them publicly came into the light at the burial of Christ, took control, and buried the body of our Savior with royal dignity and honor. Think of Jesus. He was once maligned and mistreated. I was reflecting just recently of how many people like to portray Jesus as a happy-go-lucky jokester. And yet the prophet Isaiah said he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was a man that when you looked on him, you weren't drawn to him at all. He was maligned and mistreated. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about the flogging that Pilate gave him before the sentencing, the flogging that Pilate gave him when Pilate was trying to satisfy the Jews so that the, maybe the Jews would change their mind and say, okay, you beat him up, let him go. It was a horrible flogging that didn't even compare to the flogging he received after he was sentenced. A flogging that would have bared the very bones of his body. A flogging that normally killed the criminal. He had to carry the crossbeam of his own cross to the point where he fell and Simon the siren was asked to help. His body was laid on that wood and, and nails were placed in his hands and his feet. It was there when he was raised that he bled. And it was there that he gave up his spirit into the care of his father. And to prove that he was dead, a soldier pierced his side, and not just blood, which would be normal, but water came out, proving that, in fact, he had died. These two men took that body. These two men took that body and treated that body. No longer as an abused, sacrificial lamb, but they treated that body with respect and honor as a king. The two most unlikely people in Israel, 
to be used by John to show a future generation that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. The two most unlikely candidates, two members of the Sanhedrin who had, who had, who had decided to execute him. Joseph of Arimathea was now publicly coming out and identifying himself as someone who loved and honored Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, who had crawled to Jesus at night and met with him secretly at night, had now come out publicly and honored Christ as the Son of God. It doesn't take too much imagination to think of the potential risk that these men faced. They risked their status within the Sanhedrin. They may have even risked their life. They certainly risked their reputation. What change took place? That's the question I'm left with. What would change a person? What would totally change a person to be a secret follower of Jesus, to be complicit in his death and his execution, yet each individually saying, enough. I must show people who I really am. What, what would bring such a change? The scriptures don't teach us anything more. <laughs> we're not told. We're left hanging. And I wonder if that's John's point to these early readers. Is it not a good thing sometimes when you don't get the answers and you're forced to think? Is it not wise sometimes not to give an answer? And for John to appear somewhere in Asia Minor through this writing to an individual and say, stop and think about this. You're wondering if Jesus was significant. You're wondering if Jesus was worthy. You're wondering if Jesus was who he said he was, the Christ. Consider what two members of the Sanhedrin did after Jesus died and give that some thought. We're not told what caused this change, but you and I as believers know what caused the change. Any change in a person's life is wrought by grace. Any change in a person's life is brought about by the power of the Holy Ghost. But we're not told. It's almost like John just loves to plot, put this story right in the face of his readers and say, you think about this for a minute. When a member of a Nazi execution squad steps out of the squad and embraces the very people that are being executed, what changes a person from that to this? Eh? If you were a Jew and you heard the amazing stories of Jesus, heard of his trial, 
and now hear that two people who are not members of his family and not members of his 12, two people who were respectable members of the Sanhedrin, the very body that had convened to make a decision to crucify Jesus would come out in the open to come from the darkness into the light to publicly, one even going to the governor of Judea requesting this, the other purchasing 75 pounds of ointment, coming out, taking the, taking the body off the cross, working together to put linen and ointment on, putting it and securing the body in a grave that belonged to a very wealthy man. When you heard that, would you not stop and say, well, what is it that changed their mind? Wouldn't you? Am I barking up the wrong tree? Wouldn't you just stop and say, something changed? Something changed. You might think many things, but the one thing that you can't miss is that Jesus of Nazareth, the so-called man from Galilee, must have had a significant, compelling effect on Joseph and Nicodemus. He had to have. He had to have. And stop and think about it. We have before us the inspired, authoritative, eternal word of God. From the moment this has happened and was recorded by John, and it's become ours through the ages, through inspired scriptures, these two men stand in infamy as two men who were secret followers of Christ, who upon his death took charge of his body with dignity and royal honor, and now everybody knows about it in, from eternity onward. You'll close your eyes someday and you'll open them to the face of Jesus. But at some point, at some point, you'll meet Joseph and you'll meet Nicodemus. <laughs> and you'll say, I remember you. You're the two Jews that had the funeral home in Galilee, in, in, his, in Jerusalem. And you cared for the body of Christ. It's interesting that these men are recorded by John in this way. And it's for us to stop and think. With that in mind, I want to address two kinds of people that might be listening online, listening here this morning. And I'll close. The first person I'm going to speak to is the person that I've called the quietly converted Christian the quietly converted Christian. I find it interesting that the conversion of Nicodemus was never mentioned. But as I reflected on that, I remembered this. Jesus said these words to him. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound. You don't know where it comes 
or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, there's an inherent mystery actually behind everybody's conversion to Christ. But beloved, my point is, even though you don't know where the wind came from and you don't know where it, it's going, you do know it's there. There are people in the body of Christ that cannot point to a day or a time of their conversion. You know that. There are people in the body of Christ who uh, didn't commit heinous crimes, were not saved off the streets of a life of narcotics, adultery, fornication, horrible sins. There are people that, if you ask them about their life, wouldn't be able to point to a life of drugs and alcohol. In fact, they probably wouldn't even know what you mean. Just the wind blew in their life one day, and they didn't know what was happening, but their life was changed. They had been translated from death to life in a moment. They had been translated from lost to found in an instant. Nicodemus may have had that experience. He may have experienced what the Lord, our Lord said to him in John 3. He was a teacher of the law. He was a morally upright man. As pertaining to the law, he was more righteous than any one of us here today. But he needed to be born again. And for some reason, at the burial of Christ, he stood up and let his colors be shown. He showed the world that he was a follower of Jesus. You may be here this morning, and you're not a Paul. You haven't got a history of persecuting the church and killing Christians. Maybe you're a Nicodemus. As I think back over the years that I've had to serve here, I remember when I first came here, we had an event. Uh, some of you may have even heard about this in history. It's called the Sunday evening service. Has anyone ever heard of anything like that? I'll go, I'll, I will go on with life missing the Sunday evening service. That's my personal word. Okay, back to the story. We had a deacon in our church at that time by the name. I don't mind mentioning his name. I just still love him and respect him so much. By the name of, of Herb Ziegler. What made Sunday evening services nice is they're more informal. There's lots of testimonies. And one time I asked Herb to give his testimony. And he immediately said yes, but then he came back to me and he said, Jim, I got a problem. I said, what's that? I don't have a testimony. I was born into a Christian family. I think I've known Jesus all my life. I love to serve him. I married a Christian woman. We're 
kids are raised in a Christian home. I, I don't have a testimony. I said, oh, brother, you're the best testimony of all. Ask, what, when did you receive Christ? I, I don't know. Maybe you're here this morning or listening, and you're what I've called a quietly converted Christian. You don't have a story. You're not going to be asked on 700 Club this week to tell about your wonderful testimony from your life of crime. But maybe the sweet spirit of God through the wind of God, and you didn't know what was happening, and you didn't know what happened afterwards, but something changed in your life. And that which you loved, hated, or, or that which you loved, you, you stopped loving, and that which you hated, you started loving, and your affections were changed, and your life was changed. Beloved, I want you to know this morning that you're as much a child of God, and you can claim the assurance of God's word as much as anyone else, because the evidence is in a changed life. The evidence is in a changed life, not how it happened. I can't do this because I'll weep like a baby, but most of you know the story of the violin in the master's hand. See, starting already. Most of you know that story. It depends this morning whose hand you're in. Not the story that started the, the whole process. Be encouraged. Whether you have a dramatic testimony or not, the point is that spiritually you were snatched from death and brought into a life. Spiritually speaking, you were captured from being a slave to Satan to being a slave to Jesus Christ. Be encouraged this morning if you're a quietly converted Christian. Just make sure you're not staying quiet. The other person I want to speak to before I close is someone who might be called, you think of yourself as the secret Christian. I get that right from the text. He was a secret disciple. You think of yourself as a secret follower of Jesus. You come to church. You try to live a good life. You really do believe that Jesus is the Christ. You really have put your faith in him, and you haven't moved past that. It's time to publicly confess Christ. Just as Nicodemus and Joseph identified themselves with the death of Christ, you must come out of the darkness and identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm very worried about people who are secret followers of Jesus. If you were to ask me or to ask the scriptures, 
if you're a person who has, is living your life and, and you really do believe in Christ, but you, you, you're, you don't want to make a fuss about it, you just come to church, you're quiet, you don't talk about it, you don't tell any about it, and if you were to ask me or ask better Jesus or the apostles, what should I do then? And the answer they would give you is be baptized by immersion. Say, whoa, Jim, where'd you go? That was the early church call to people who were converted. Now that you've trusted Christ, you need to come out publicly and confess Christ as your Lord and Savior through baptism. And just as these two men identified themselves with the death of Christ, you must come out out of the darkness and identify yourself with the death and the resurrection of Christ through baptism. Baptism by immersion is not an option. And I preach that with a level of passion because I know of people in Elk Point Baptist Church who identify themselves secretly as followers of Christ and you've never come out publicly and confessed Christ as your Savior and Lord. And somebody has falsely taught you that baptism is an option. And it's a command. It's a command. Because we have prayed that the Holy Spirit will do his gentle work this morning. I'm praying that if you're here this morning and in your heart you say, well, I'm a believer in Jesus, but you've never come out and been baptized, my dear friend, you are disobeying Jesus. I, I speak that level of honesty that you might really consider these words. And maybe it's time for others of us in Elk Point Baptist Church to quit playing games about our faith. And I hate to use this phrase because it keeps has other connotations, but Come out of the closet. Maybe it's time for you to tell that coworker of yours that you just don't go to church, that you actually follow and obey and love Jesus Christ. So many Christians are content to say, well, I go to church. To their neighbors and their friends. So many Christians, well, I believe in God. You know, you know my answer to that. The devil believes in God. Maybe it's time in this generation for the men and women, the teenagers, the graduates, the boys and girls to quit playing around and come out of the closet and say, I'm following Christ. Maybe it's time 
for Christians to stand up and be counted in the coffee shop, in the coffee room, in the lunchroom, in the truck, so that when a topic comes up about the problems of race and the problems of sex and gender and marriage, the issues of social criticism are discussed, the impending future of the world, maybe it's time for Christians to quit being vague and start telling people the truth. From these two men, I draw two applications. One is to those of you who wonder about your salvation because you didn't have a sordid past that you can think of, but you have quietly come to faith in Christ, and today you are a public follower of Jesus. Be encouraged. It's not the day or the time of your conversion that's important. What's important is, are you living for Jesus Christ today? Or maybe you're part of the second group who loves to go into life every week and hide. Scared. Fearful of the Jews. Maybe it's time to stand up and be counted. So that when the topics and subjects come your way, you give a clear, definitive Christian answer to them. And don't hide in the malaise of public opinion. Nicodemus and Joseph. <laughs> You couldn't have written that story. You're not smart enough. You're not even creative enough. That John would take these two men, both esteemed members of the Sanhedrin, who threw aside their obscurity, who came out in the open and identified themselves with Jesus. And if I was a little Jewish boy sitting somewhere in Asia Minor reading of these two, I'd say, wow, that Jesus must sure have had an impact on those two men. That they would come out and even risk their life to be identified with the Savior. Will you pray with me? We admit, Lord Jesus, that when it comes to recalling great men of the Bible, 
we rarely think of Joseph and Nicodemus. But I want to thank you this morning, Father, that you gave their story to us through your inspired word, that we might be encouraged by it. Encouraged in our faith and encouraged in our witness. Change us, we pray, O oh God. Before we attended to your word, we sang. And we sang honestly, I surrender all. Help us to mean that, Lord. Help us to really mean it. I'm bold enough this morning, Father, to pray that you would allow Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to transform our thinking and thereby transform our lives. And may Elk Point Baptist Church be transformed entirely as men and women and young people and boys and girls who are not ashamed of the gospel. And we hear your admonition as we leave, Father. If anyone is ashamed of me before men, my Father will be ashamed of you in heaven. Cut us to the heart but then heal us with your spirit, we pray. Be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray.